Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. All right, welcome B3 Nation to the Sunday edition of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. We do this every Tuesday and Thursday at 5.30 Eastern Time. And Sunday, our weekend edition at 5.30 Eastern time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Please tweet out the space. Follow all of our amazing market masters and guest speakers when we have them. And let's just dive in. We, we got a big week ahead. It's been a slow summer months, but that never slows us down at Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. We're going to look at the week that was. We're going to look at the week ahead. We are going to talk about why stock and bond markets are heading the same way on the Fed. We love to talk about the Fed. The Microsoft Activision deal that Mark's been talking about is going to fill you in on that. And the heat. We're all feeling the heat. We'll talk about what that means in the market space. Good to have you all with us. Alex, Alex by the way, Alex Massioli is on a plane. So we've got Nick Mancini from Trade the Chain at the research desk filling in, in those big shoes. Nick always does a great job. Um, Mark, Mark, let's talk about Verajet, the only solution for low-cost, short-haul private aviation. Yeah, Rob, that's right. And by the way, um, Alex is on a plane heading up here to New York because we are going to be doing, as some of our listeners have heard, we're extremely excited. This is huge news for Revolution Radio and huge news for Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. We're going to be recording our pilot episode in person on video from the incredible NASDAQ market site, Times Square, New York City where we are going to be uh, starting our video version of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain that you'll be able to catch on a number of platforms. We'll be announcing more about that as those relationships roll out. But very excited. I'm going to be there in person. Uh, you're going to be there in person. Uh, John, his brother Pete, is a special guest as well. Myself, Alex Massioli, doing what we do from the incredible NASDAQ market site, just like those mainstream media guys, Rob. It's very, very exciting stuff. Um, so a good excuse for Alex to not be with us on this rainy Sunday evening. It has just been raining, folks, perpetually, incessantly up here in the Northeast. Uh, I think we've started building arcs or something approximating an arc. But the best way I know to get out of the bad weather to where the sun is shining is with Verajet. Verajet, of course, our sponsor. We, we are continuing this incredible private jet ride giveaway. I think I keep saying, I keep challenging listeners, show me someone else in the business that's giving away seats on a private plane. I don't know of anybody, certainly nobody's come forth and shown me something else. Well, to celebrate our partnership with Verajet and Verajet joining the ranks, of our fantastic sponsors on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. We are giving away a ride on a private plane, that incredible Cirrus SF-50 Vision jet. That is that jet famously with the parachute for the entire plane and that artificial intelligence-based landing system if something should, God forbid, happen to your pilot. Verajet is the operator of one of the largest fleets of these SF-50 Vision jets to learn more. Go to verajet.com. That's www.verijet.com. And I know producer Patrick is going to put a link to the sweepstakes page up in the crow's nest. You have to share with us in a few sentences your worst travel experience or travel nightmare to be eligible to win a ride on a vision jet, SF-50 vision jet. And uh, depending on where you're hailing from, we'll determine the winner, that is, we'll determine where you're headed. So if you're from the uh, uh, southeast uh, area, you might go from Miami to Bimini for lunch. If you're from the northeast, we might take you 
from the New York City area regional airports to Nantucket or the Hamptons or the Vineyard or Cape Cod. If you're on the West Coast, you might be in for a little trip from L.A. to Vegas, Santa Monica Airport. So I'm going to do that based on who the lucky winners are. So please check out Veraget.com, hit that link in the crow's nest, join the sweepstakes, try to uh, win a ride on a private plane. Incredible. And, you know, as Mark said, guys, nobody else gives away free jet rides. I mean, Elon's not offering you a ride on SpaceX. We're offering you a free jet ride. All you got to do is tell us a, a bad travel experience, which everybody has. It is such an amazing giveaway. If you're not trying in for this thing, you're you're foolish. This is the easiest market decision someone could make, John Nigerian. Speaking of which, what did the week last week look like to you? Well, it looked pretty good, Rob. Um, we kicked off earnings season with uh, record revenue at Mark's favorite airline, other than Verajet, his favorite commercial airline, Delta. And then we had pretty good uh, news out of J.P. Morgan, which helped lift the entire market on uh, Thursday, Friday. So we finished off the week pretty strong. And right now, I'd say I'm keeping a sharp eye on Bank America because there aren't those same bullish bets that there were uh, on uh, uh, J.P. Morgan. And despite the fact that David Solomon has really screwed the pooch over at Goldman Sachs, the stock's down 5% year to date. Um, nonetheless, people are giving him one last shot and somebody's buying a lot of upside calls, basically thinking that maybe it gets about a 7% bump uh, to the upside after earnings. So we'll see if that plays out, Rob. But uh, yeah, it was it was a decent week last week, and even when we're in these holiday shortened or summertime markets, um, we've actually had a pretty robust amount of trading, uh, which certainly I'm sure the brokerage firms appreciated, and obviously we over at Market Rebellion appreciate it too. Hey, John, I know you 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 too are about to get on a plane, a little delayed. Um, but that's great. That's great because it means John's with us for a few more minutes. Everybody's flights are getting delayed. So before I jump over to kind of get the 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 um, week ahead from Mark, just any quick thoughts? I love your fantastic futures. Any quick futures, picks, things you're looking at, thinking about based on what you just said coming up this week? Well, uh, based on what I didn't say, but what you and Mark said, it's hot, and heat means. Uh, that we're going to see natural gas draw, uh, meaning that people are using natural gas for that instant on power that they need at the power plants. All of us don't use it to cool our homes, but our plants use that to add that additional boost to their output so that they can meet the demand when temperatures get above 100. And that doesn't look like we're going to slack off anytime soon, Rob, especially as Mark said, even with uh, the cooling uh, wet weather we've had in New York, the central part of the country is still under that heat dome. And it's uh, a huge uh, burden for those electricity producers. So I would say uh, if you're somebody that wanted to short natural gas at these levels, uh, that's a dangerous play. I'm still long that gas futures right here. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, um, Two sort of two things. One, definitely want to hear your view of the week ahead and what's coming up. I know we talked the other day about earnings season kind of kicking into gear. Um, but also, just in general, give everyone a quick take, kind of the macro take. Um, you know, we've had a pretty resilient um, U.S. economy. Maybe, you know, the labor market, you know, how much momentum are we getting from that? What's your take on that? And, and how does that kind of factor into what you're looking at in the week ahead? In terms of jobs in the labor market? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, we, we're definitely starting to see um, a very, very strong labor market, much stronger than I anticipated, much stronger than the street anticipated, much stronger than the Fed anticipated or that the Fed has wanted. That um, very stubbornly resilient U.S. labor market has been a big part of the challenge for J-PAL in getting trying to get inflation in check by raising rates um and because you know why or part of the reason why um and it's actually interesting that we don't put these dots together more often and, and we sort of i was thinking about this this morning that we should have 
we sort of should. Um, you know, a, a resilient and strong labor market helps continue to drive demand and drive consumer consumption, right? People have jobs, <laughs> and so they've got money to continue to spend out there, particularly on those discretionary non-core services, right, that part of the economy has remained the most st stubbornly inflationary. Um, and we are starting to see signs of the labor market cooling. Um, as we all know, you know, after uh, surging in May, we got the June jolts, uh, job openings numbers that fell to 9.8 million the lowest level since October of 2021. Uh, we saw this uh, quit to layoff ratio rise of 2.5%, um, which is good. Um, and listen, you know, these are, these are numbers that show that the labor market remains strong, but not as strong as it has been, that it's starting to cool. Not unlike, and this is one of the reasons why we see a strong correlation, right, to inflation. With the inflation numbers that we got last week, the PCE, the PCI, all very good, and in both instances exceeding the street's expectation in terms of the positive nature of the numbers, it's still, and I remind people of this all the time, as I did, you know, sort of at cocktail parties over the weekend, you know, these numbers are still going up. They're not going down, right? Inflation is still rising. It's just not quite rising at the same pace, right? We're starting to see it cool off as it starts to turn the corner. Same thing with the jobs market. We saw, for example, uh, non-farm payrolls in June rising to just shy of $210,000, which fell short of the street's expectations and clear uh, slowing uh, of non-farm payrolls as compared to May. So we're, we're definitely starting to see signs of cooling in the labor market, which is a good thing and could be one of the reasons why Jay Powell decides he's not going to do it in July. He's going to raise 25 in July, as I've said. But that, of course, after the August break, that we see a skip in September. You know, it's interesting, Mark, just on a sort of a common sense thing, you talk about like jobs and people spending, right? goes back to like, if we give people a livable wage, then they'll buy the cars they're making, right? It's sort of in that simple logic. You more making money, more people spending money because people have been spending. Well, yeah. and that that, that's, that's right, Rob. That's, that's a great analogy. And, you know, the other thing that we saw, geez, I think it was the end of the week before. Sometimes even I get, get lost in these numbers um, that we turned the corner on the wage inflation situation, right? And, and that's a condition where you've got a rising rate environment like we do now, and uh, but, but, but you do not have wage growth, right? What people are getting paid by the hour actually catching up with that inflation. So not only are you paying more for stuff that, um, you know, you, you had to pay less for six months or a year or so ago, but you're, you're having to stretch the same dollar further and that same dollar uh, buys less as a consequence of the fact that you're not getting an increase in your wages, right? Your your wages are, are stagnant. That's where that wage stagflation concept comes from. So we also saw that those numbers turned the corner, I think, a week or so ago, which which is which is a good thing, of course, right? But it also means uh, more uh, consumer consumption is possible because, you know, the, the, the amount people are getting paid has caught up on an inflation-adjusted basis. And what are you looking at quickly for, you know, for the, for the week ahead? What do we have going on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, keeping your eye on things? Jeez, quickly, you, you, you left me only a minute or two for the week ahead. This is a truly action-packed week in terms of the earnings season, Q2 earnings season really kicking into high gear. Lots of really important companies reporting next week. Some of our favorites, Tesla, you know, we're Tesla and Elon Bulls, Lockheed Martin. We're going to see if that um, situation that I've been talking about for months where we are uh, out of bullets um, and because of everything that we've provided to the Ukraine um, and obviously the state that we have right now with what's going on, you know, with China, et cetera, if that benefits Lockheed Martin and other uh, defense-related names. We've got Netflix reporting this week. We've got a slew of banks reporting, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, 
Pool reporting next week. We're going to see if United Airlines jumps on the same Delta bandwagon and beats the street's expectation on continued outsized consumer demand for vacation travel. And we've got a fair amount of important economic data, particularly as it relates to the housing and real estate um, market in the U.S. So let's break it down quickly. Monday, we're getting the New York Empire State Manufacturing Index. That's an indication of how the manufacturing industry is doing in New York, in the New York area. Uh, nothing in terms of significant earnings, at least for the stocks that we watch on Monday. Tuesday, different story. Tuesday, we've got Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, PNC Financial, Bank of New York Mellon, and, of course, Lockheed Martin, where we'll see if that out-of-bullets trade starts to pay off, which I suspect it will. We've got economic data on Tuesday, including retail sales, industrial production, business inventory, retail inventory, and the first significant print as it relates to housing and real estate data for the week on Tuesday with the NAHB Housing Market Index. Wednesday, boy, oh boy, busy day. Tesla, Netflix, IBM, Goldman Sachs, Kinder Morgan, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, lots of oil industry stocks there. Lots of bank names, Goldman Sachs, U.S. Bank, Discover Financial, United Airlines rounding out third base for the airline industry. Wednesday's got quite a lot of additional real estate and housing-related data. We've got housing starts and building permits for June. Thursday, uh, Taiwan Semi, Johnson & Johnson, Freeport, McMoran, Capital One, and DR Horton, of course, the home builder. Travelers Insurance, one of the companies we're watching on a story we're going to cover later in the show as it relates to the impact of extreme weather on equities. Thursday will also give us the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index and existing home sales, which we're expecting to show continued historically low levels of existing home turnover. Friday, a quieter day with American Express, Schlumberger, Regions Financial, and Huntington Bank shares reporting earnings. So, Mark, you did that amazingly quickly, and so much information there. But before we move, let's minute, and John's still with us. So let's talk just quickly, you guys, about a couple of those earnings coming up. You, John, you know, Mark, you mentioned Wednesday's Tesla and Netflix. So question for both of you guys is, one, does Tesla now announcing that they're beginning the production of their Cybertruck that they've been talking about for a long time, does that factor in? I mean, Tesla stock just, you've been a bull, you've both been Tesla bulls, but Mark, you've been, you know, on the Tesla bandwagon, long and hard. And then with Netflix, does the writer's strike affect it? Or do they have enough, do they, I mean, that writer's strike could go on for a good six months. I mean, do they have enough, and, and are good, does the market care right now? Or are they going to wait and see? Well, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at both, and then I'll definitely get John. Um, number one, the Cybertruck is actually one of the few Tesla products that I'm not that excited about. I don't think that's going to factor in that much. Again, of course, we're talking about reporting the, the, the company's economic performance for the second quarter of this year. So, you know, going back to several months, I think um, I'm going to be looking to see whether or not we've gotten um, the uh, re results of improved margins, uh, things like changes in the tax code that are making buying a Tesla in places like California uh, a virtually uh, a offer that people can't refuse, which is why if you drive around Los Angeles, it looks like they give you a Tesla just for moving there. I've never seen more Teslas on the road than, than in LA. Um, as well as all of the uh, non-electric um, uh, vehicle production-related things. You know, we saw so many announcements in the past few months, Rob, of company after company agreeing to join, right? You know, if you can't beat them, join them, agreeing to join the Tesla network for EV charging. We saw announcements like that from names like GM and Ford and others. So I'm more focused on that. As it relates to Netflix, no, I don't. I don't think the street is that concerned yet. In my opinion, I, John could have a different opinion about the impact of of the writer strike. Um, I, I think it's going to be more a question of whether or not the password sharing crackdown continues to reduce that massive fifty billion dollar a year. That's right, I said fifty billion dollars a year that Netflix lost in twenty twenty three due to an uh, 2022, pardon me, from an authorized password sharing um, and whether or not they continue to enjoy some more significant market share through just a rather, frankly speaking, superior uh, slate of, of, uh, of programming. I, I And I know it's going to sound crazy, Rob, I, I discovered Narcos Mexico a week or so ago, and um, I have not been able to, to stop binge watching it. And that's just some of the 
the quality of programming that Netflix has. And I used to hate Netflix. I was a Netflix bear for a long time. Well, John, bringing you into this, to Mark's point, and I guess the only question I would ask, it's not even so much the writer strike to me, it's the actor strike because they're striking and that not only shuts down production, but they're not allowed to promote anything. They can't, you know, three major stars walked out of a major premiere right in the middle of it, you know, because the strike kicked in and they're like, we won't promote what we're doing. We won't make anything new. That has to have an effect at some point in the next month or two on lots of entertainment brands, right? Uh, it will, Rob. It has and it will. Um, I don't think this will affect, obviously, what's going on right now will impact the next quarter for next Netflix. Um, this quarter, I think I, uh, most of us are pretty bullish still on Netflix. It's had a good start. Um, and I think it just gets better, quite frankly, because Netflix, um, they're pricing in about a 7% move to the uh, upside uh, out of this company right now. And I think that might be underestimating it even, believe it or not, Rob, because of that password sharing issue that you and Mark mentioned, they were getting an extraordinary number of people converting into new Netflix uh, users, even though they, of course, had been using it for years and sharing somebody else's password. But once they cut you off, then you have no choice. You either decide to give it up. You're not going to watch that way, which is really a tough fever to break, or you got to go subscribe. And it's not exactly too onerous, uh, but it's a huge number, uh, just as you guys were discussing, potentially that Netflix could drop to the bottom line. Uh, because that's all brand new revenue there that they didn't have to pay anything for. So the big thing will be the churn. Did people actually drop as well as new accounts come in? And I think the answer to that is going to be no. Um, that their churn will be a very positive number, not a negative churn. Um, and Rob, if I could, I'd just say about Tesla, my gosh, they've been buying all the way up to the 385 level in August. Um, the stock, I'll remind people, was 280 on Friday. So I don't think it makes a $100 move, but I think that people are definitely uh, still trying to ride that 160% return that they got earlier uh, from the beginning of the year through last Friday. 160% Rob for a mega cap stock like this that's worth riding yeah you're both you're both bullish on it get get in your Tesla with or without the Cybertruck um and Mark just gotta say you know there millions of people I think are Mark like they you once you get hooked on Netflix and these streaming services you can't unhook like it's like an addiction you're gonna pay the ten ten dollars or twelve dollars I think that's what I, I didn't think it would happen but it clearly did so Maybe we're all Netflix addicts now. Uh, it is time to remind everybody what you're watching. In case you somehow forgot, you're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. You're listening, but you will be watching. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. This is our weekend Sunday edition, which we do. We added it in so you guys would have one extra day to get ready for the beginning of the week, give you the insights before we get into the week. But on Tuesday and Thursday at 5.30 Eastern, we do it all over again. We also do a show at the end called Beyond B3. Some of us call it B3 After Dark, in which you guys, B3 Nation, can get into a convo. Great guest. Julie Lamb is hosting it, so stick around at uh, 6.30 Eastern tonight for that. Please follow us at Get Rev Radio. It means a lot to us. We, we value the followers. We value your interaction. DM in if you have comments. And, and you know, just become part of this is an interactive thing, you you know, and you get to interact in, in the Beyond B3 show. So you actually can request to talk and raise your hand and, and Julie will, will bring you in as long as you don't talk about aliens. Nick Mancini from Trade the Chain. Alex is en route in a plane. You're filling in. Give us the crypto and we'll have our crypto segment later on, but give us the crypto overview. Particularly, I'm fascinated by the fact that Bitcoin is literally bouncing between your two numbers on your, your super, you know, see the future chart. Thank you for having me, Rob. Happy to fill in for Alex. We do miss uh, miss him dearly, but uh, I think we will be able to handle the show. And fantastic job to John and Mark so far. Very insightful stuff. So uh, when we're looking at crypto, we you know I have to preface this is the weekend, and the, you know crypto is twenty four seven. So we sometimes say the casino is open on the weekends while the uh, trade fi markets are closed. So we do expect to see a slightly less volume, slightly less participants, but we're 
seeing crypto total market cap hovering around 1.21 trillion, down just around a percent since we last spoke on Thursday. Total trading volume for Sunday is 24.5 billion, which uh, again is around half of the typical daily average during the trading week. We typically see 50 billion or more across the trading uh, uh, across the um, you know Monday through Friday sessions. But you know it is the weekend, so less participants. People are on vacation, hanging out with their families, taking a break from the shit coins. Um, looking at Bitcoin directly, we're seeing trading volume down 47% compared to its 30-day average. And for Ethereum, trading volume down 40% compared to its 30-day average. And again, you know, this is the norm. Both Bitcoin and Ethereum daily sentiment are neutral, with Bitcoin sitting at 52 out of 100 and Ethereum sitting at 57 out of 100. And I will say, when Bitcoin does relax, the, uh, the emphasis does switch to Ethereum and altcoins, which explains a slightly higher Ethereum sentiment. And uh, the, our outlook will obviously discuss a little bit more in depth. But, uh, you know, if Bitcoin continues to have flat, um, you know, or bullish volatility and prices hold into Monday, we'll expect, you know, a positive bullish week. But if Bitcoin starts to slip down towards 29.5 uh, and have a slightly bearish chop to it, then we may see a broad market sell off towards the beginning of the week. So verdict is still out. And I know we'll discuss that later in the show. That's great, Nick. Yeah, I, we want to hear it. You know, I like to have your updates on, you know, you have been so accurate with your charting. And I'm fascinated as I watch Bitcoin do its movements. And I'm going to later in the show kind of ask you to give me a prediction. I know you're saying it depends. It depends. But still, you know, to to, to just give me your best guess as we as but got to stick around for that, everybody. We're also going to talk about Larry, uh, about this, the how Larry Fink is is literally now become from a Bitcoin hater to it's going to be the most significant currency. Um, we've talked before about the stock and the bond markets not being in alignment on what they think the Fed is going to do, you know, either raise or lower. And your theory is that they're moving toward a consensus. So explain what that means and why. And what is the consensus they're moving toward? Yeah, no, Rob, Rob listen, that, that's absolutely correct. And loyal listeners will be uh, have their uh, memories jogged by part of this uh, discussion and debate that we've had among the market masters and even with special guests like Tom Lee and others in terms of the stock market having uh, exhibiting a pattern of that, a bullish pattern um, that would give one an indication that the Fed was going to take action in one direction while the bond market was actually moving in a, in a different direction, right? And so we are finally seeing going into the end of the week on Friday that equities and the 10-year real yield on the 10-year have actually sort of started to move inversely once again, right, which is actually what they're supposed to do. So um, it, it's it's interesting what the catalyst was that actually caused this inversion, which is sort of the norm, more natural uh, condition uh, in a rising rate environment. Um, and part of the reason for that is the kind of rally that we've had um, in the stock market as well as in the bond market. Investors, of course, try to tend to go into treasuries when rates are higher, right, for obvious reasons. And higher rates also tend to indicate more challenging economic conditions, which make investments in most equities considered to be more challenging. That's why we have that sort of risk-off rotation that we talk about, particularly when J-PAW started uh, raising rates to fight inflation. So um, we think that it's this concurrent rally that we've seen both in bond real yields as well as in stocks as being somewhat atypical, but it's actually driving this inversion between the two. I think it's a good thing, and I think it's an indication I'd love to leave some meat on the bone on this one for John to talk about uh, or give his two cents. Uh, but we think that we now have the consensus between the stock and the bond market moving inversely, particularly as it relates to that 10-year real yield, that we're looking at 25 basis points, a pause, and then probably another 25 before, and cuts not likely to occur until some point in time at the end of the first quarter. 
So we lost John. Is I think John is is taking off finally at his plane. Uh-uh. So you're going to have to speak for him. You're going to have to put the John hat on. No, that's okay. you know. No, I mean, no. I, I'm actually um, Nick Mancini. Do you do you want to comment on this? If, and no pressure. Just I know that you're no pressure, Nick. You're no pretty pressure, good however. DeFi guy too, as you are a, a, a DeFi guy. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate the applause. Um, you know, in in uh, in respect of the uh, the issues that we had, I accidentally had a you know a small outage right there on my audio as well. So it's, can we repeat the question? But I have no problem hopping in and speaking with uh, with Mark on this topic. Yeah, we were we were talking about the fact that uh, the ten year uh, the stock and the bond market are now actually performing in a manner that's giving us a unified signal as it relates to the direction of the Fed, uh, because the 10-year and the equity markets have started to move inversely again, as we, as one would normally expect. Yeah, so, uh, and I appreciate you guys bringing me in again. Um, I will admit that uh, when it comes to bonds and equities, that is not exactly my forte. So although I would like to, to speak on this with you guys, that's certainly not where my focus is. But just to kind of hop in on what I'm looking at in terms of equities and other markets correlation, I will say the dollar dropping down uh, a steep, steep drop all the way to 99 and a half uh, from, you know, Thursday in, or from last Thursday's session, uh, or I'm sorry, 10 days ago session into this recent Thursday session is quite a steep drop. And I think definitely supports, you know, the bullishness that we've recently seen in equities. Um, But I will say, you know, anytime we do see a steep drop, and I recommend this to all traders across all markets, especially when you're tracking correlation, extreme moves in either direction need to be respected. And if you do not see a correlated extreme move, meaning we did not see equities spike up, you know, out of nowhere, while the dollar is dropping multiple percentage points, um, that could mean that the dollar may be reaching a support zone and that, you know, the, the, some of this bullish euphoria uh, may be a little bit misplaced. I'm not ready to say it yet, but, you know, massive drops or rises in any currencies or commodities or assets, I typically take, you know, my foot a little bit off the gas and I and I rethink uh, my bias moving forward, at least in the short term. So I, I will I will say that. Well, Mark, based on that, I mean, what would you? What's your prediction? Are yields going to continue to fall? I mean, are we going to see a sell-off? Uh, is I mean, I know you don't know the answer, but do you have a hunch? No, the short answer is no. Right. This this is a, what what we're reporting on here, Rob, is a normalization trend, right? Um, and not necessarily that we're going to see outsized uh, movement. Um, and, and look, we are continued, as as we've said, you know, four times now. So apologies for the redundancy, but we're looking for 50 basis points more before we start to cut. So we're still we're still moving. We're still moving north when it comes to rates and, and, and yields. So um, that's that's what that's going to do in terms of the bond market, I think, until, you know, the, the first quarter of next year. So let's talk about micro, Microsoft and Activision. You've been talking about this since February, Mark, and it's a big deal. I mean, you know, Sony, Sony, you know, Sony has, you know, Microsoft and PlayStation are basically, you know, going to keep, you'll explain this, but keep Call of Duty on PlayStation. But I, I think it's interesting because Microsoft makes Xbox, right? And that competes directly with PlayStation, yeah. with Sony. So yeah. yet they're they're acquiring Activision, and they obviously carved this thing out. What does it mean? What is the significance of that? Well, you know, listen, I, I like to try. Thank you for the for the question, Rob. And I like to try to have follow-ups on stories and follow-ups on stocks that we've covered for a while. And we've been covering the, micros, the proposed acquisition uh, of Activision by Microsoft, which has been uh, opposed by the Federal Trade Commission. You know, we covered, I believe, on last Sunday's show or possibly even last Tuesday's show that the uh, Mike, that Microsoft and Activision had actually, it was Tuesday because the news came out during trading on Tuesday, actually, of last week, that um, a, a district court uh, had actually decided to rule in favor of the Microsoft uh, acquisition of Activision Blizzard games, uh, it opposing the SEC, the FTC's attempt to block the deal. Activision investors and loyal B3 listeners will recall actually spiked up 11% on that news. The question was posed to me by, I think, Nick and or Alex Masioli 
But I'm like, doesn't that mean that the FTC can go ahead and appeal that ruling? And I said, well, they absolutely can. The deal's not out of the woods. And of course, at some point in time on Thursday morning, we learned that the FTC had, in fact, appealed that ruling. And that is kind of where this story comes in. News coming out over the weekend, actually earlier today on a Sunday, that Sony had signed a binding agreement with Microsoft to leave Call of Duty or COD, as gamers like to call it. And and I'm not a huge gamer, but that's definitely one of the games that I've enjoyed playing over the years. That it would remain on the PlayStation console even after closing the Activision Blizzard deal, assuming that it gets past FTC op, uh, opposition. As well, of course, there is similar opposition from antitrust regulators in Europe as well, uh, based and premised on similar issues. This was a move, in my humble opinion, to try to sort of smooth the ground a little bit uh, while things are still ongoing uh, in terms of this litigation with the FTC and attempts to block the deal. Uh, Microsoft essentially saying, hey, look, um, you know, we're going to leave this popular game on PlayStation. Uh, we're not going to try to move it over to Xbox. It's an attempt at ameliorating some of the concerns, the antitrust and the unfair competition concerns that have been expressed uh, by the FTC as well as other competition. Deal's not done. Um, the deal was signed off on in, in May, uh, but the Competition and Markets Authority, which is the FTC equivalent, has also moved to block the deal in Europe, similar to how the FTC, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard looking to close the deal by the 18th of July. So that's Mark, Tuesday, according to my calendar. Mark, Nick, I see you have your hand up and I'll bring in in two seconds. But oh, yeah. and, and for everybody, for everybody, you know, again, Activision makes Call of Duty. That's why it's a big deal. Is you, You're saying, Mark, you could see this as they're sort of trying to like smooth the waters or whatever the phrase is. But is it actually a smart, is it actually an actual legitimate thing? Like we will keep this major, like you said, you're not a gamer. Everybody knows Call of Duty. Like we will keep that game on Sony, even though we're acquiring the game maker. So we're not becoming a monopoly. I mean, is that actually a legitimate argument? Like, see, we're not. Well, you know, whether or not it's a legitimate argument is going to be a question for the for the, the, the courts, right? For the, the Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals specifically, that's going to be ruling on the FTC's challenge to the district court's decision in the uh, FTC suit to try to block the deal. I do think, though, look, I've been bullish on this deal since we started covering these stocks and we started covering this deal. I do think it's going to happen uh, based on what I have been reading uh, and, and the research that I've done in terms of what the leanings are um, of the district court judge in particular. Uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit in California, this is a court that sees lots and lots and lots of these technology and antitrust related technology cases. Shocking. They're in California. Silicon Valley companies are venued there. It's not rocket science. Um, but I actually believe that at the end of the day, this is not going to create the kind of, uh, you know, significantly unfair competition and competitive advantage from a combined enterprise. And I think this is a very smart move on Microsoft's part to do this and to leave COD on PlayStation. So, Nick, you had your hand up, obviously, um, to jump in. And just as a thought, you know, gaming is an interesting area. It leans into the Web3 area. I'm always been a skeptic of the power that a Microsoft has, that a Google has, even that an Apple has. So I get the tendency to fear them being too big but I also get that they're likely to often be the most innovative and they'll try to acquire anything and everyone, you know, to build rather than let them become, become a competitor. So just kind of a thought in there as you jump in with your idea. Yeah. And I actually had a question for Mark, but just to quickly touch on that, we saw Google is open to uh, integrating Web3 and NFT technology into their Stadia program, which is on no way, shape or form in competition with Xbox or PlayStation by market share. But it's still significant that a big company is, is using, you know, innovative techniques to try and gain market share and, and gain adoption from gamers. So I find that fascinating. And as a Call of Duty fan, um, you know, while this merger has been going on, they actually upgraded Modern Warfare 2, which is one of the best games of all time um, and it's easier to play now so I'm very happy about that just on a personal note but what I wanted to ask Mark is um, you know the FTC I believe is 0-4 in, in Biden's tenure 
uh, in terms of cases. So from an extrapolated market kind of question, if you're looking at the FTC going after company A, B, C, and D, and, and in the future, there may be an E and an F, are you kind of, you know, and, and if, of course, an FTC suit could be bearish, at least temporarily for price action as the market right sizes itself with, with the introduction of news. But with the FTC being 0-4, does, does this as an investor or a trader make you think, hmm, the next time the FTC takes a case, maybe I'll bet the other way because you know maybe after a sell-off because the ftc obviously has a, a pretty poor track record in the court system right now well yeah i mean the short answer to that nick is yes right i mean we look at all of these kind of statistics and it's not necessarily because um they're bringing cases in front of conservative republican leaning appointed judges or one thing or another it's just this is an ftc that intends to have um a more zealous and some might argue you know anti-free market approach to regulation and competition and therefore is bringing cases that this, some might argue, I'm among them, might be one of them, that didn't really need to be brought, right? Um, so as a result of that, if they're, if they're bringing cases that are uh, sort of a little bit more on the fringes in terms of their, their merit on a relative basis, then their track record is going to reflect it, as you've accurately pointed out that, that it has. And I would take that as an indicator, not a single dispositive decision-making element, but as an indicator perhaps of how I might determine the outcome of this or other FTC cases. You got to look at each one individually. And, you know, look, one of the things that's interesting about playing, uh, you know, deal arb when it comes to this kind of M&A activity and the involvement of the FTC is you can read the rulings, right? I mean, you can read the pleadings. You can read. You can really dig deep if you're into that kind of thing, and you don't have a life like like the market masters don't, or we like to let people think we don't. Um, there's lots of fodder there for research, for drawing your own conclusions, for hearing the tone and tenor of the parties, and understanding what their relative positions are. Um, so that was probably a long answer to a short question, but yes, I would bet against the FTC, generally speaking. If I, if I was picking horses, that would not be a horse that I would be picking to win the race just based on its its uh, its win, uh, play, win, place, show. Is that it? Yeah, I'm not much of a win, place, and show. You're listening yeah. to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter spaces at GetRevRadio. We do it Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, 530 Eastern. Please follow us. And share, tweet out the space, follow all of our speakers, our market masters. And when we have guest speakers, follow them too. And stick around because in about 15 minutes, we launch the Beyond B3 show with Julie Lamb, where you guys, B3 Nation, get to be part of the convo. Mark, I want to talk about weather. Um, I want to talk about the extreme weather. And by the way, everybody, don't buy for a second when Mark says he doesn't have a life. I mean, that's like a supermodel saying she thinks she's a six or he thinks he's a six or whatever. I'm just saying. You know, the, the the great thing about what these guys do, everybody, is because they're smart and because they've made such great decisions and spend so much time working so hard at understanding the markets and dealing with it in such a professional way, they're able to create really great lives and still work all the time and enjoy it. And that's kind of the beauty of it. We're not telling you exactly how to do it, but you're going to listen to these guys and you are definitely going to walk away smarter than you walked into the room. And I don't care who you are. That's just a shout out to you guys, Mark. John, Alex, Nick, um, Mark, weather, weather, weather. El Nino, we talked about it last week. We talked about how it was going to have an, uh, you know, the weather would have an impact, maybe an outsized impact on certain stocks. John talked about, you know, energy and the weather. Um, we're going to just take an update on it. Like it's, it's the, the weather just keeps getting hotter. So I don't know. I'm like the hottest June ever. I'm ready for the hottest July, the hottest August, the hottest December, the even hotter next June. Doesn't seem to be going down no you know rob it's it's not right um and and apart aside from it being very uncomfortable for it being you know bad from a health perspective for folks with pre-existing conditions the elderly people that live in conditions that don't have you know access to the same air conditioning and things of that nature and you know that's not just in in, in you know lower income or impoverished areas there's large swaths of europe 
um, some pretty high-end parts of Europe that just aren't designed for this kind of weather. I've, you know, getting reports from friends and family in Italy of 110 plus degree heat in certain parts of that country. But look, um, the reason that we're bringing this up again, and I, and I think it's going to be something we're going to cover, not every show, but maybe once a week, is we are seeing some really, really extreme weather. And folks, to put this in perspective, and Rob intimated it, June was the hottest June since they started keeping track of the heat. That is 174 years. Hottest June in 174 years. And that does seem to indicate that we might looking at another record-breaking July. You know, John was mentioning that cooling rain up here in New York. He's going to be very disappointed when he gets off the plane in a few hours and hits that wall of humidity. Yeah, it's been raining, but, man, has it been hot and steamy even with the rain. All of this heat doing nothing uh, to help, uh, you know, certain things like, uh, you know, the, the, the polar ice caps and sea ice levels and, and all of this stuff. And look, you know, whether or not you believe in the in, in relative intensity of it, whether or not you believe in, in your, uh, you know, a full, uh, you know, global warming is, is, is killing us and we need to do things immediately dependent regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. Right. And that this is not a political conversation. It's damn hot and it's damn hotter than it's been in a long time. And what does that heat exacerbate? That heat exacerbates that El Nino weather, weather effect, that weather pattern that we were talking about last Sunday, which is adding fuel to the already rolling fire of extreme weather. And I think, you know, a lot of what we're even looking at here in the Northeast with all of this rain is continued impact of the Canadian wildfires. I'm praying, being a part-time Californian as I have been over the years, praying that we don't have a bad wildfire season this year. But, you know, we, we will see. Um, and we could see more extreme weather we're getting into. Of course, hurricane season. We've already seen nine tropical cyclones as measured by the National Ocean Oceanographic Institute. Um, and we have 93 million people in the United States living under excessive and extreme heat warnings and advisories. This week is expected to bring, quote-unquote, searing heat wave to much of the West Coast and the Southwest. Okay. One Mark, we'll get up. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't realize you weren't. I had a question for you, but go ahead and finish the conclusion because I saw you were. What does it all mean? So, yeah, what does it? Well, what what does it all mean? What does it all mean? It could be bad for agriculture, right? This kind of really, really excessive heat can wipe out crops. Not good. We are already paying thanks to inflation more so more for food, a lot of basics. Uh, than we were uh, six months ago or much less a year ago. John's done a great job in our Fantastic Futures segment um, in covering uh, that trend as it relates to how it's impacted the price of things like soybean, uh, corn, FCOJ, things of that nature, all headed to the upside. Great for traders if you're long terrible for consumers because we're already paying too much for the, at the supermarket. That problem could be exacerbated and is likely to be exacerbated by the success of heat as it, it makes this a very, very bad year in terms of crop yield. I think we could see uh, further power outages, uh, which, as uh, John mentioned, good for natural gas, right? As we look to alternative energy sources, if we have uh, grid outages and failures, not unlike what we saw in ERCOT, that, of course, being the Texas independent grid when we had that extreme cold uh, a year and a half ago that that happened and whether the same thing can happen on the other end of the excessive temperature spectrum. I'm watching very carefully names like Chubb and Progressive and other of the PNC property and casualty insurance companies as they can be very significantly impacted, negatively impacted. Much of them, some of them reporting earnings this week, so I'm going to be looking to see if there's any uh, mention or concern in forward-looking guidance of the impact of extreme weather, El Nino, the hurricane season, et cetera, on how those CEOs are forecasting how those companies will perform as we get into this third quarter where all of this extreme weather tends to be concentrated, or much of it tends to be concentrated. So very, very important. I think the story of weather is going to become a bigger and bigger uh, feature in the conversation about the directionality 
of a lot of different sectors of the stock market. It's not just a, it's not just crops. It's not just insurance. It's not just power and energy. There's a lot of the data centers. Yeah, it's a problems when we have when we have energy uh, outages. If we have data center outages because of power and energy related outages, that could affect. Just about every industry, right? We all rely on on data centers. Everything from, you know, Amazon, Netflix, all of that data being processed and stored. We rely on these massive data centers. If they can't get power, or if their power is interrupted for even short periods of time, you can see that negatively impact a lot of different stuff. Well, Mark, Mark, and and I I love the idea. I think we should be talking more about it. And it's not just about the catastrophic implications of global warming, as you said, what, what, you know, this isn't a political conversation, but, you know, I'm going to totally mess up the name, but the dam in the Netherlands, the Afschludek, or, you know, it was built in the thirties, you know, for the North Sea and separates two seas. Right. These were the smoke, the wildfire smoke. My family that's from Wisconsin. I went to the Fourth of July and they the week the week before they were like, it's never happened before. Like we couldn't breathe like, you know, we're in southern Wisconsin on a lake. So you're talking about sectors beyond the obvious. We're going to see all kinds of new technologies emerging. Right. To try to deal with how you manage these climate shifts that are going to affect populations, those dams in the Netherlands are they're not they're not going to be sufficient, you know, for certain European countries, you know, you know, whether it's Venice or the Netherlands, Houston, you know, like population shifts even in developed countries, right? I mean, there's going to be a whole slew of new technologies looking at how you manage this, right? It's the it's a whole new sphere. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, I I, I think unfortunately, Rob, and, and this could be a show in and of itself. You really can't reverse some of these impacts of global warming. You, you're, you know, we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to replace the polar ice caps and things of that nature, um, and and get sea levels dropping again. Some of some of the damage is just done, unfortunately. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, um, and that we've even invested in, right, personally and, and through the organizations that myself and and John are are involved in um, on on the buy side, uh, where we've invested in and and continue to look to support uh, renewable green and blue energy so, uh, solutions, renewable um, uh, hydrogen, things of that nature. You know, the the continued expansion of the of the EV world. Now, the problem there is is that the you know, the EV ecosystem, right, actually is incredible. Uh, dirty um, so it's you know it's not just plugging in your car and not polluting it's understanding the entire supply chain but that that's a rabbit hole we'll go down another time on our climate show the bulls bears a blockchain climate show nick mancini let's talk a little crypto um i want to i want to ask you about um what's happening the effect of ripple but before i do i want to jump ahead real quick i'm fascinated by larry fink now he's go- he's the head of blackrock He's gone from literally saying it's a Ponzi scheme to saying Bitcoin could transcend any one currency. I mean, that's that's like Paul on the road to Damascus or whatever. It's kind of like, wow. This is a bit of our uh, coming to Jesus moment, if you will. And, and I mean, just take a step back first, uh, you know, the the three, the, the 180, I should say, that's happened. I mean, JP Diamond has has been attacking Bitcoin since pre-2017. Uh, Larry Fink has been quoted multiple times uh, speaking negatively about it as well. And, and, and kind of just to extrapolate this, as I typically do, if I had to make a guess, I, I you know, I'm, and I'm, you know, I love crypto to death, but I, I feel like this GameStop GME, you know, meme coins or meme stock saga that involved Robinhood kind of woke the entire industry up and is saying, why are we only serving one audience or, or why are we only virtue signaling to one audience? And and kind of what Larry is saying here, it seems if I read it, we have a we we believe we have a responsibility to democratize investing. I mean, that sounds like something that the biggest Bitcoiner in the world was saying in 2013, you know. So he's changing his his voice. He's code switching for his audience. And I believe now he is fully on the side of the Bitcoiners and the crypto crowd, or at least that's what he wants us to think. Now, let's not, you know, kid, uh, BlackRock starting an ETF, Fidelity, VanEck all getting in uh, on that boat is extremely bullish for the industry. But I always preface, you know, it's important to understand where we've come from and what people were saying before, because there have been plenty of wolves in sheep's clothing uh, in the cryptocurrency sector. But it does, if I'm reading this verbatim, you know, his quotation about, you know, uh, you know, um, 
you know, good cryptos having, a, you know, a, a currency value almost or transcending currency value. This is very bullish. Now, I will say, be careful longing whenever Larry Fink is speaking, because every time he's got on TV and talked about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in a positive light, it has been a bit of a local top on the chart. So next time you think, you know, just longing indiscriminately into that news, think twice. But the more he's talking about this, the more they push the SEC to pass these ETFs to quote unquote democratize investing uh, is going to be very good for the industry. And it brings more eyeballs and more tensions. And we've already seen way more tweets than we are used to over the past couple of months. So it is working. But but wouldn't it be fair to say, I'm going to go back to use my Henry Ford analogy since I can use it twice in one show. But again, Henry Ford wasn't a philanthropist. He was an industrialist, but he realized if, if I make this product and people can't buy it, what's the point? So I need to essentially democratize income. We can, People have to have a middle, people have to be able to buy. There needs to be a middle class. So when you say Larry Fink's going, well, let's democratize finance, but be careful. He's got a selfish motive. But those two aren't mutually exclusive, right? It's smart to democratize finance. It's a win for BlackRock. It's a win. It's a win. The more people you bring into the game, if it can work to make you more money, it's a win for you and a win for them. It's selfish, but it works. 100%. Me, myself, everybody on this, you know, who's listening today, as well as Larry Fink can all be winners as as it play as this plays out as we expected to, i.e. BTC ETFs get passed, eventually more crypto ETFs get passed, and we have better and more clear, you know, on ramps and off ramps, as well as infrastructure to handle all the money that we expect to flow in. So um, I, I am not wishing, you know, Larry Fink ill will, I just, you know, always think that everybody needs to understand what what is in front of them. But we can all win together. And I think what Larry is doing along with, you know, and I have to mention Fidelity, they've been mining Bitcoin since 2014, as well as a few others. Um, what they are doing is good for the industry, whether or not you are a, a socialist, a, a capitalist, if you want to make money that requires more people buying the asset that you also hold, and for more people to be able to hold that securely long term, which is exactly what BlackRock is trying to do, and create the rails and the precedent for the rest of the industry to buy these crypto assets as well. Mark, let me bring you into this because it's really interesting what Nick's talking about. The idea, and I do think GameStop, that whole thing, I remember watching it, doing my live stream show at the time, you know, reading, looking at Reddit and what was happening. It, it was like a little kind of mini finance revolution, right? The idea that there's a win if you democratize finance, even for the big guys, Again, it's corporate self-interest, but it works, right? And so there's, a, and if you're a Bitcoiner, it's a Bitcoiner's dream. That's pure philosophy. Like this will, you know, equalize everything. I don't know if we'll ever equalize everything, but there's no downside in this, is there? Uh, well, there is potentially, right? I mean, I heard Nick use the wolf in sheep's clothing uh, analogy. It is something to to be aware of, right? I mean, they're clearly. Yeah, but Larry is clearly talking his book, as we say on Wall Street now, with them having significant dogs in the in the fight, in the hunt, as it were, with these ETF filings. We definitely saw, you know, look, we went through the whole tinfoil hat thing. Alex is on a plane, so we can't do tinfoil hat hour without him. I don't think it would be fair. Um, as to the timing of chokehold one, chokehold two, etc., FCC uh, enforcement action like crazy over that three-week period you know gonzo gary gensler and then lo and behold the institution suddenly get into the into the uh fray could join the party with these etf filings and there being a lot of suspicion around whether or not this is sort of clearing out the little guys allowing for consolidation in the asset class by the incumbent Wall Street, you know, uh, mega uh, powerful companies uh, like BlackRock. So um, short term positive, as I think we've we've already seen, although I think the bigger catalyst has probably been the XRP ruling, even though we've seen some of the steam or the froth come off of that as people have started to read it in more detail. But I think there's some good to, there's some a bad that will come with the good on that one. So, and we're going to talk about the XRP ruling and the, the, what's happening with Ripple is our last topic here. But before we do last question on this, I'll start with you, Mark, on it. To your point, though, you're saying, look, the wolf in sheep's clothing that Nick mentioned, 
you know, could they just be trying to basically corral this sector? But if you democratize and bring enough people in, doesn't that automatically kind of make that harder to do? It's like you you are ultimately in democratizing it. You make it harder to hold on to your control. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into too philosophic of a conversation, and I know we've probably got uh, Julie um, looking, although I don't necessarily see her there on stage, but Julie yeah, hopefully getting ready to come on. We're going to go, we're going to go beyond B3 in like three or four minutes, everybody. Okay. You know, stay, stay with us in the overflow, but it's an interesting conversation, Mark, right? Because you will look at this stuff pretty closely. And so do you, Nick. I mean, just intuitively, I'm honestly asking if you, it's like, if you bring enough people in, you are creating not just more wealth, but you are creating a way to let Bitcoin become a more powerful asset. And Bitcoin is a power, you know, the, the premise of Bitcoin is it does give you a lot of individual autonomy. It does create an offset and off ramps to the traditional currency. It, it definitely does, Rob, right? Assuming that part of the, and I hate to do it, but I have to, because I do think some of this is true. Assuming that there's an, that the consolidation attempt and the, and what was accomplished accomplished not just attempted but accomplished with chokehold, which I do believe was was real, um, is in part to pave the way for a CBDC, which is going to you know not only not give us more freedoms through cryptocurrency, but have even greater control over every aspect of our financial lives. I'm 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 extremely ex afraid of a CBDC um, here in this country as well as in other parts of the world, but I live here, so. This this is my primary concern. So, you know, if this is part of a larger pattern of trying to, you know, consolidate the industry among a very, very small, and it's kind of funny as I hear myself saying this, it's kind of the opposite of the, uh, you know, pro-business, pro-free markets, uh, anti-FTC <laughs> approach that I was giving in the Activision Blizzard Microsoft deal analysis earlier, but that's okay. I can have different opinions. Um if if it is to sort of consolidate and clear the way um, so that we, we have control of this unique new asset class in the hands of a few, that is the opposite of decentralization. That is the at 100% the opposite of decentralization. And I think we'll further, we'll drive even further innovation offshore and out of the U.S. So Nick, um, a last thought on this, and then let's talk Ripple real quick. But But to Mark's point, you know, again, he's 100% right. And I'm simply putting out the possibility that maybe the big guys try to consolidate. But if you give enough people Bitcoin, you start hurting that consolidation. Now, the central bank digital currency thing, Mark is right, 100%, right? If And that's what they may be ultimately trying to do. I just, you know, I interviewed RFK Jr. again, like, like him or not, like he's, you know, one of the candidates who's terribly concerned with what that would mean for freedom. But this would seem to almost, even if that's their goal, work against it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this topic is best summed up by this phrase. I mean, nobody has ever made money in a vacuum, right? Uh, you know, to, to, to have the asset that you hold continue to accrue value, there has to be more capital put into that asset over time. And what we're talking about right now is widening the, the waterfall of capital that can be added into the reservoir of crypto. And I think that's just the easiest way to put it. Whether you hate or love institutional finance, they have more money than you can count or think of. Uh, and if you want the assets that you hold to grow, you need that capital to be injected into your holdings, or at least the assets that you hold. And and, and that's how you win. So I personally would like to win, and I'm not going to fight Fink. I'm not going to fight the U.S. government, but we're going to discuss exactly what the trends are and, and what that means to you. And I, I think this is a very positive thing. Thing moving forward, provided Larry actually does what he's saying right now and speaks truth to the words that he's saying. So last, last thing, let's just quickly talk about Ripple. Mark brought it up. It seems like everyone is very excited about the XRP decision. And now there's a little more indecision in, in the market space. What, what do you attribute that to? With Bitcoin bouncing, you know, sort of between your 29.5, 31.5, you know, Ethereum having a different kind of resistance. So just quick take. 
Yeah, and we, we talked about this on Thursday, and we did have that, you know, decent-looking daily close that I had mentioned, although we did not get above that 31.5K level that I that I wanted. It was actually $50 short, and as you, as you I'm sure, saw, you know, over Friday into the weekend, we did drop back down towards that 30K level. So my lines in the sand are still that 31.5K level for bullish resistance and 29.5K for bearish support. Um, I will say the the rise to 31.8k that happened last Thursday um, definitely complicates the way things look at on the chart and and how we typically trade. Um, but what you would usually expect from a range, and like I said, you know when when the when the high is 31.5k multiple times, the low is 29.5k multiple times, that is the range. And typically after you tap the range high, which is what we did at 31.8k on Thursday, typically. Typically, you believe that you will tap the range low, which happens to be that 29.5K level. Now, that does not have to happen. And, you know, very much like we were uh, trading on Tuesday when I when I said this, we're pretty much dead center of the range, which means I don't really want any piece of this for a specific trade, which means I want to long 29.5K. And I likely want to short 31.5K until we get, you know, news that I think, you know, potentially have an ETF acceptance or likelihood of acceptance or potentially, you know, insanely uh, bullish newsprint from uh, trade fire world, such as the Fed is not thinking of hiking at the end of the month, which I don't think will actually be, you know, a news cycle. But, you know, that's an example. Um, without that, it's going to be tough to really break through that 31.8K level with significance. So I'm trading the range right now and when we're in the dead center of the range i don't want a piece of it so i'm looking for the to short the highs or long the lows early this week great insights you guys great conversation this has been bulls bears and blockchain on twitter spaces our sunday weekend edition we do it tuesday and thursday and sunday 5 30 eastern at get rev radio please follow tweet out the space follow alex john mark nick and all of our speakers who come on Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.